Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 77, On the Road Again, recorded on March 18th, 2018. My name is Julie Bayfan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hi, Julie. I'm glad we could finally get a podcast in because it's been a while. Our apologies to the listeners, and when they hear this podcast, they'll understand why it's been so long. Why don't you talk about, let's do this chronologically because there's just so much that you've been doing. Let's start with, we came home from creativation in Arizona. Yeah. So I think we recorded a podcast at the end of January after having been to creativation. So we were able to discuss that whole show. Um, and then I was home for a while, a couple of weeks, and I'm always reminded when I'm home for a little while about how much you can get done creatively and actually not that much time. Now, I know, I know we all have this thing where like we don't have enough time to get things done, the projects that we want to get done. But what I discovered is that if you actually are somewhat focused on what you want to accomplish, you can make an entire painting in just a couple quick sessions. You can make an entire quilt in just a couple, you know, quick sessions, all that kind of stuff. You just have to go in with some focus, you know. And so what I've been doing actually in my bullet journal, which has been really useful for keeping track of my projects while I've been really busy, is I sort of jot down um when I'm working on a major project, what my goal is, or I sketch out an idea. And then when I stop, I take an, I take, it literally takes, I'm, this is not hyperbole. It literally takes like one minute. And I write down a couple notes about what I learned or what I would like to move on to so that the next time I come, I don't have to sort of retrace my steps in the project. I can literally look at the note that's right there and be like, oh, I wanted to try moving, you know, this circle further left or I wanted to change the contrast. And then I can also make a choice based on that's what I wanted to do when I left. But looking at it now, is that still what I want to do? But I have, it's like, it's like, you know what it is? It's like when you end the tape and you fold the end over so that you can pick the tape up next time. Do you have to do that? No, but does it make it easier to just be able to start the roll right away? And it takes like an extra second, right, to just fold that end over. So I think leaving yourself some instructions, even if you're not using a bullet journal like I am, even if you stick a post-it on the project or whatever, just makes it a little bit easier. Okay, so you came back, you had a couple weeks at home which sounds luxurious. They were lovely weeks. And looking back on them now, uh, I think, oh my gosh, why wasn't I doing even more? Why was I just laying around and hanging out with my family and friends? What a disaster. Yes, you shouldn't allow yourself any time, any downtime. I agree. It's really a waste of time. I so know. you went to the MFA first. Was it a was that the connoisseurship dinner? Yeah. So so the MFA or the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston is my local art museum. And I really believe in getting involved with your local art museum no matter where you are, if you can. Um, and so I went to, they have a connoisseurship dinner every year, which, I mean, the schmancy nice part of it is that you get to actually like sit in a gallery and have dinner. Although, I, so my funny story from that is that my boyfriend doesn't eat anything from the sea. If it's from the sea, it's not for me. Um, and so I promised him that this sit-down dinner would, of course, not be fish because why would they make it fish? Because a lot of people don't eat things from the sea. I'm sure they would have like chicken or something like normal for the food. And of course, a piece of salmon arrives on the plate. So then we said he was a vegetarian to see if there was like, you know, maybe pasta or something like that. But then it ended up being like a giant squash blossom stuff with more vegetables, which was also a no-go. So he made it through. <laughs> He, he ate dessert. It was good. But anyway, um, so the connoisseurship seminars are a really nice thing that the museum does where you get to choose. There's a list of like seven tours um, and you get to choose your top four and then you're randomly assigned two of the four. So the thing that I like about it is it's like a really intense and quick 
moment. It's the tours aren't longer than 20 minutes, I'd say. And it's literally usually looking at one or two objects. And a curator just gives you a really deep understanding because that's the whole question of like, what is a connoisseur? You know, and a connoisseur is somebody who actually knows something rather deeply, right? That you have sort of an intense knowledge of something. So what they're trying to do is give you this taste of connoisseurship. So the two tours that I was assigned to were the Murakami exhibit. Murakami's an artist. Um, he's a contemporary artist doing some interesting large-scale work, much of which is digital and much of which is done in a studio by other people with his supervision or under his direction. Um, one of the stories the curator told us is that Murakami, something of a control freak, he has hundreds of people working for him 24-7, like around the clock. They have They come in three shifts all 24 hours of the day and he has like a cardboard box with a sleeping bag in it that he sleeps in in the studio and also he has video cameras everywhere in the studio and he watches on his computer what people are doing while he's not there and da 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 da, da. it sounds a little psychotic if you ask me <laughs> but interesting it's sort of like art factory um, but we talked at length about basically the exhibit juxtaposes um, classical Japanese art and Murakami's modern work or his contemporary work, um, and looking at how he's influenced by it. And in the exhibit is a very large piece that was created, inspired by uh, a piece in the MFA's collection. And actually, it was a challenge to Murakami, who really doesn't pick up a brush and paint anymore, um, because this guy uh, named, oh God, I'm going to mess up his name, Tadashi, I can't remember his name. I apologize for that. But he is an art historian. And he basically said to Murakami, you know, you're a chump. You can't even paint anymore. All you do, you know, is sort of make digital things and boss people around. And so Murakami actually painted this piece, um, which is very unusual for his style of working, which, of course, I also didn't know just from looking at it. The, the most interesting thing to me is that it's this huge red dragon it is my favorite piece in the entire exhibit, and apparently it's Murakami's least favorite piece because he feels that it's not commercial and it won't sell. And the way that he creates art is for sale to his clients, and he says it's not the kind of work that his clients are interested in. It's also, frankly, too large scale, I think, for most people to ever have. In fact, the only wall it can hang on in the entire museum is the wall that it's on right now. There isn't another wall big enough in the whole museum to take it. Um, so that was really interesting. And I got just like a slightly deeper look. We got a little extra history about, of Japanese art. I got a little more deep knowledge about Murakami, his working style and, you know, who he is as a person, which was always, I think that kind of information is interesting to know and gives you a different way of looking at the work that you see. Um, it was interesting to know how little of his work he actually creates. I think it's increasingly common in some of these pop artists that they don't actually physically make the work. And that's a great debate that we could have for many hours, days, weeks, years about, uh, what that means about art. Um, and then <clears throat> the second talk I went on to, uh, just was the greatest talk in the entire world ever. Uh, I hope that's not hyperbole. That's, that's, high, that's <laughs> high praise. Um, so it was by the guy who is in charge of all of the frames in the MFA. So he's in charge of all, he's the curator for all the frames. And he took us through in the Dutch exhibit some of the frames. And first of all, he was so geeked out about it that it was fascinating just because he was geeked out. I generally think that if anybody's geeked out, about, I mean, it's why the reason, one of the reasons I love podcasts is because podcasts are made by and for people who are geeked out about something. So like, for instance, today I drove home from Maine and I listened to Science Friday. Now I am not a scientist. I did not do well in science in school. I do not know anything about science. I am not naturally scientifically inclined, but uh, those people are geeked out about what they're doing. And so I find it fascinating. And I, you know, came home with a head full of the, you know, Aurora Borealis named Steve and uh, ideas about physics. And there was a little bit of, you know, Richard Dawkins light in there. And just, I, I think anytime somebody's geeked out about something, that's exciting. So he was geeked about frames and he could not wait to tell us everything about frames. And honestly, it blew my mind. I had, I had known a little bit about framing because I had taken a class at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, 
in which the uh, the guy who was teaching was a conservator. Like what part of what he did to make a living was to uh, conserve art uh, for private collectors. And so he talked a lot about framing and how museums had made some bad choices with framing, had removed pictures from their original frames to make them more uniform, had, you know, and so on and so forth. And it made me start to think about frames. But this guy blew my mind because he started to give us the clues about how to tell whether a frame was original or not how to tell, you know, uh, why it mattered, how a picture was framed and what it would say about the maker. And also he pointed out that if some of these frames were a couch or a chair or a table, same level of workmanship, same everything, we, there would be like a plaque dedicated to them and a huge thing. But because they're frames, they get like tossed into the basement and nobody cares. And we all were like, why aren't there curatorial, you know, notations about the frames? And he said, you know, this just, he's, he's advocated for it many times and people aren't interested. And I thought that was fascinating because why wouldn't you be interested? Frames are an opportunity, right? And like one of the reasons I always wondered about gilded frames, the reason that they're gilded, it turns out, is not because they felt that like pictures were fancy. But if you imagine that it's everything's lit by candles, you're looking for a way to capture you know, light to have this moment where the painting like glows or can be seen. And so the gilded frame is reflecting the light, you know, or there's things like the Dutch were, I don't want to be a jerk, but they were like fake pious in some ways. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't have any money and I'm not being showy. So I have a plain black frame, but it's made from ebony, which is the most expensive wood that you can possibly get but you guys, it's plain black, so I'm still a Puritan. 17th you know. century Dutch. Let yeah. us restrict ourselves to them. Yeah. Yes. I don't want to make statements about the Dutch everywhere. Yes, that's not what I mean. Um, but so there's just a lot of really interesting stuff about the stories that frames tell about where the work has been. And you can see, you know, he talked about like when you see a picture that's a 17th century Dutch painting and it's in a gold frame, then you know it's been reframed. You know, and uh, that tells a, a story, too, that somebody thought the painting was valuable enough that they wanted to showcase it, as opposed to the ones that you find in the original frames, in which case people may not have liked them. And also, I asked him a question, which is, I said, when you come across, you know, a painting and it's not in its original frame, do you do you think it's better to find like a repro or create a repro that looks like the original frame or leave it in the original in the non-original original frame, which may still be like an 18th century frame, which is pretty darn old, right? But it's not the one from the 17th century. And he said he thinks of uh, paintings and frames as a marriage. And he said, you can be Elizabeth Taylor and you can have 18 husbands, you know, and who's to say which the right one is maybe it's the last one you end up with is the right one for you even though it's not the first one that you married which I thought was a lovely way of thinking about frames um, and it sort of made me think a little bit about the idea that art is not as static as uh -huh. we like to pretend that it is and that that whole process of framing and changing, that's like a way that the art actually evolves with time. And you can see how different values, different aesthetics have actually changed this painting, which may have, the painting may be the same, but the frame has changed over that time. In a, in a kind of very simple-minded way, when you move your furniture around or you move the things on your walls around, you find sometimes you see something in an artwork that you hadn't seen before, or it brings out something that you didn't know about. It's, so the surrounding atmosphere, the environment really does influence how you see something and the frame is part of that. It does because you can imagine that in these old um, houses where they used to hang the paintings from practically from the floor to the ceiling, you know, three, four high, etc., and across the wall is if you had them all in like similar frames that it would be less sort of cacophonous in an odd way. And if you had them in like a wide variety of frames from different time periods, you'd be like, ah, 
what's happening? And it's also interesting because I talked to that evening, another woman who's an artist and we actually got to talking about framing and she was saying, Oh, it's, you know, we were both discussed how expensive it actually is to frame art and how I said, one of the things when I sell a print or sell something to somebody is I usually sell it unframed partially because framing is personal, but also, Oh my God, it's so expensive to get it done. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's amazing how much the difference of the color of the mat makes or like how wide it is and like, you know, the exact frame. And it does change the way that you look at the picture. I recently stayed in a um, guest room and this woman had two very similar prints and one was framed with a white mat and one was framed with a red mat. And it was like crazy the difference just from that matting exercise. So I think it's like when you look at something and you think, oh, this would be better against a white background. This would be better against a black background. I mean, that's what the frame is, is it's creating that background. I Wow, my vocabulary is just so good. <laughs> stunning. So stunning. My intellect is shining today. You must be so proud, mom. Always. Um, but yeah, so and the by frame, the way, I yeah. am a connoisseur of you. You are a connoisseur <laughs> of me. Um, and I am a connoisseur of you. That's the way the friendship works. Um, yeah. But what I was going to say, so then at the dinner, I sat with one of the curators, which was really interesting for two reasons. I wasn't, she's a very well-known curator named Elliot Davis. And my interest in talking to her was to talk to her as a human being who ha who is a connoisseur of art, actually. But what I found is there were other people at the table who wanted to talk to her as if she were only an expert and a connoisseur. And so every on, I understand that they're, they're interested in making conversation, but every conversational volley basically began with a, in your exhibit, in this exhibit that you saw, I saw a talk you gave where you said, you know, and I was thinking about how, how it's great when we run into people who are experts or connoisseurs of certain areas, but it's always more interesting to talk to them about things they're not experts about, you know, and to sort of feel it out together instead of always being the student and them being the teacher. And I assume it's more interesting for them too, but who knows. But the second part that was interesting is there's a woman at the table whose job, and I should see if we can get her on the podcast because I think it would be interesting, but her job is as a private art buyer. And what she does is clients hire her to buy art for their homes. And she said, because she was on the framing tour, that she spends an enormous amount of time framing things. That's a huge part of what she does for clients is they buy art and they need it framed you know, and so she focuses on that nonstop. And I thought that's really interesting because she's now making all these decisions because a lot of contemporary artists are not unlike me. They sell their work unframed because it's cheaper, right? And so, yeah, even galleries sell it unframed. So it's, it, it's, you're running into an interesting thing where she's the one who's making these decisions and you're trying to make them in somebody else's taste, which I also find fascinating so yeah i think the connoisseurship dinner was supposed to be a short answer but it was really interesting so that's a long answer okay then you and i went together to a a workshop at the harvard art museums in byzantine tapestry weaving and we made epic tapestries mom would you like to describe your tapestry well i happen to have it here and it's maybe Four or five little squiggles of. Uh, I was about to say, if you said it was four thread. or five inches, I was going to say no, you're no, a no. liar. There's no way that you got to four or five inches. I'm not a liar, and I never have claimed to be a weaving person. In fact, I think since since the old uh, hot mitts or uh, those pot holders, kindergarten, mm -hmm. you know, where you weave a little. Yes. Uh, I don't think I've done one since. So I like to think that my skill level might have improved since then, but actually I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I learned a lot about weaving and about Byzantine weavings in particular. Obviously, I, I actually took a, a lot of notes in that class. But the thing that – and I learned also about obviously how hard it is – to weave, very, very difficult, um, and how time-consuming it must have been. Um, but I feel like I also learned a little bit about teaching. 
Okay. As, well, as you always do when somebody is teaching a class, right, which is you take away the good and the bad. This is a woman who is a very experienced weaver who obviously had an incredibly deep knowledge and I believe has taught weaving classes before. Maybe not to that group and maybe not to a group of people who've never woven. Woven. Um, but I think of myself as a clever person. I found her incredibly difficult to follow. Did well, you? part of the in in on her behalf, I will just say that the class was so mixed in terms of skill level and experiential level, and she may have tried the old thing of trying to teach everybody simultaneously at all their levels, and that's really hard to do. Yeah, but like just like the very basics of things, it's like she just. I yeah. think partially because, and this is actually, let's talk about connoisseurship again. She's obviously a weaving expert and she's obviously someone who knew a lot. And I felt like she did the thing, which people do sometimes where she gave me just too much information. Mm. It's like, I just didn't, I didn't even know where the string was going or what was happening. And there's like 25 instructions coming at me because it's like, you know, a deep level of knowledge. And I was like, I just need a tiny little shallow bit of knowledge. Which way does this string go? And then there's even stupid stuff. Like she shouldn't have let us pick our colors for the tapestry, in my opinion, because I feel like we spent an enormous amount of time choosing colors for our one inch tapestries as they ended up. <laughs> and it's like, really, she should have just like handed out the yarn. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's stupid stuff like that where you think you're giving people choice, but it's actually making things more difficult, more time consuming. And then it would have been easy because instead of her saying like, oh, use your dominant this and your this and your secondary that, she would have just said, put the red thread and then add the green thread, you know. All right. I'll concede this point. Well, no. I mean, the reason that I bring it up is just because I think that... Every time you, you know, every time you're in a museum looking at a painting, it's an opportunity to think about like what you like about art and what you don't, right? This is somebody else, what's hanging on the wall is somebody else's choices about what's good and bad. It doesn't mean that they're your choices. And the same thing is true like when you're in a class or a lecture or, you know, somebody else is driving a cab. I mean, don't you sit in the back and say like, well, I wouldn't have taken that risk or I would have gone through that yellow light or whatever it is. And it's like, if you don't use other people as an opportunity to map out different choices that you would make, it's like you're actually losing out on experience because then you have to say that the only way to gain experience and the only way to gain knowledge is by doing it yourself, which I don't think is true. I know people say all the time that they're wasting time on Instagram and they're wasting time on YouTube watching stuff, but I think that that stuff can be beneficial and can be not a waste of your time if you're thinking about the takeaways, what are you, you know, what are you taking away from this? What are you going to do with this information? How is this? If you, if you just take a moment to process it, this is a little bit like, I mean, we're going to come full circle all over the place, which is, is a little bit like how I opened saying that when I was home and I actually had some working time, I found that I could get a lot done, but I needed to keep a couple notes to keep myself straight. And it just took that extra minute, right? It's the tape loop at the end of the roll. And this, I feel like, is the same thing, which is if you don't take that moment to process what's incoming to you, then it's pointless. Then it's a waste. Then there's no reason in doing it. But if you take that moment to sort of process what's happening, then I think that you have a learning and then none of it's a waste of time, you know? So the next cute kitty video that I see on YouTube, I'm going to... Well, Mom, think let's think about this. Let, what is something that you learned from watching a cute kitty video? Yeah, exactly. No, what is something you learned for reals? Okay. There, there was one I sent to your brother when he um, was in Disney Disney World. Yeah. And they, he and his girlfriend were staying at the Pirates of the Caribbean Hotel. And I found a video of a cat who had been dressed up by its owner in a pirate outfit and it was walking weirdly because of being in this pirate outfit and I guess what I liked about it was not that it was in the pirate outfit but the weird walk 
That's interesting because I watched that and I thought, oh, that's so clever the way they made they decor they had like just the front legs done so right. that it looked like it was like a little pirate walking, you know. And I was like, that's a clever illusion. Well, there you are. I don't want to get letters from PETA, so let's <laughs> move on. <laughs> okay, okay. What's next? So what's next is so I just want to say that we actually had the opportunity at this workshop, which is one of the things I like about the Harvard Art Museum's workshops, to go and see and feel and examine actual Byzantine. Okay, well, we didn't actually get to feel them. We did All get right. to see them really close with I a like emotionally. with a magnifying glass, but I think if we yeah. touched them, they would have lost their minds. But I think it's really wonderful when the class is combined with actual examining other people's work like that. And yes. I had the sense that I will never be, I will never be a Byzantine tapestry weaver. So let's move on. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll never also like look at a Byzantine tapestry and not be like, wow. Exactly. Because of how difficult it is and how they make shapes and shading and three-dimensional qualities. Yeah. And just, they're so beautiful. All right. Then you went to first New York City and then New Jersey. Yes. So... First, uh, in New York City, so I went to the Met, which I haven't been to in quite a while. Um, it's one of the five great museums in the world. If you want to visit all five, it's the Met, MoMA, El Prado in Spain, the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, Russia, and uh, the Louvre in Paris, France. And so... I still have to make it to El Prado, but then I will have been to all five. But anyway... So, The Met, epic, amazing, always charming. Um, I really went to see the David Hockney exhibit, which everyone had talked about so much. It was crowded, like, uncomfortably, terribly, horribly. And, in fact, there was – this is so not art-related, but it's at least fun. There was an incident with a security guard who yeah. had to approach a man who said, excuse me, there's a woman who says that you are – you were being rude to her or something. And then the man said, well, she was being rude to me. And, uh, you know, then it started this whole conversation and the woman basically ran away. She did not want to, she just wanted to get this guy into trouble, but it was an interesting thing hearing him and the security guard sort of arguing and talking because apparently what had happened is she had wanted a photo of the painting without anybody in it. And listen, we were like, sardines in this exhibit. I mean, you are touching strangers. You're standing so close to them. I don't know how, you know, I, I mean, you only manage to like just snap a photo. You don't, you don't get to have like two minutes of the painting to yourself. And so apparently she was like being an unpleasant person about it. And he told her in very New Yorker terms to go something herself. And she got a security guard. Hmm. So it was interesting to see the aftermath of that. It was performance art, I guess you could say. Um, so David Hockney's never been an artist that particularly interested me. I mean, I know that he's super famous and important and blah, 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 blah. But I find his work very cold, mm. very uh, unemotional and clinical in some ways. But, okay. but he had some sort of... Um, at the end of the exhibit, he had some work that I liked very much that was this kind of Matisse-y, uh, large-scale paintings uh, with a blue porch and just uh, deep greens, interesting colors, sort of big shapes, just, a, you know, a sort of variations on this theme of a house, I think, that he lives in. And I, those ones appeal to me much more because they were messy is a weird word to use whenever talking about Hockney because Hockney's never really going to be messy, but they felt less controlled, less contrived, less perfectly stroked. Like he's always been an artist who you look at his paintings and you don't see the brush strokes, you know, uh -huh. Uh -huh. you look at his paintings and they're still, they're caught almost in a preternatural way uh -huh. like there's there it's like almost like the air stops even in even when like someone a figure's moving in a swimming pool you sort of intellectually understand it but there isn't 
there isn't actual movement. It's like caught in a block of ice or something. So those paintings to me more than anything felt like they had life in them, which I think is something that appeals to me. But the thing again, that's interesting to me is art is subjective. And there are people who I'm sure are Hockney huge fans and think I'm psychotic for saying any of that kind of stuff about his work. But that's what I like is I like that, that, that every time you look at a painting, it's a dialogue, right? You're having a conversation with that painting based on what your, your baggage that you're carrying, you know, and it's possible that in 10 years, I could look at the same art and have a different reaction to it. It's possible that 10 years ago, I might've had a different reaction to it. But in this moment, it was like, I appreciated this huge retrospective. It was really interesting to see like the different phases of his work. Um, and I found it particularly interesting that the work at the end seemed to breathe. It's cute that you think that your opinion about Hockney is why people think you're psychotic. But let's That's keep true. moving. That's true. So many other reasons <laughs> to choose from. Um, but the Met, you know, the Met's always a good time. A anytime you lo are looking at anything in their collection, you know, it's just um, – room after room of fascinating objects and so big you couldn't possibly make it through in a day, you know, always worth a visit. Then at MoMA, um, that was a quick run through mainly because I went to MoMA particularly to see, uh, my father had contributed some work to a film and the filmmaker very kindly had posthumously, uh, or the filmmaker, not posthumously, but had dedicated it to the memory of my father, I guess I should say, because of the work he contributed. Um, and the film was premiering at MoMA. So we went to go see that. And then with a little extra time, we went to see a couple different exhibits. Um, there was a wonderful exhibit from a Brazilian artist whose name is escaping me at the moment, but I'm sure I'll think of it in a minute. But the more interesting thing is there was an exhibit that was about artists over time changing and what it was about was the idea that artists don't always make the same kind of art in the beginning of their career as they do in the end and by the way the Brazilian artist is Tarsila do Amaral and I looked that up I didn't actually remember in case you're thinking that I suddenly pulled that name out of the sky um, but yeah, so that was really, I liked her work a lot. Um, but anyway, so, uh, there's work from the end of artists career. So you may know them for, you know, X, Y, Z, but then, so you may know Cy Twombly for certain things, but then here's his work now later in his career. Okay. So you may know, you know, this artist from uh, Gerhard Richter from his earlier work, but here's what he's doing at the end of his career. And so, uh, you know, people lock into artists sort of when they hit their fame as like, this is it, this is the art. And then they kind of want you to keep making that art for the rest of your life with some obviously minor exceptions like Picasso. People do that all the time in other artistic fields too, like music. They yeah. want the musician to keep playing the old favorites. And sometimes they're not so happy with the new stuff. So yeah, so that's that's part of this whole thing. So it it was definitely um it was interesting to see and I liked a lot of the later work and you can see sometimes where artists are naturally uh their extensions of work that they were doing previously and I also really like the idea of evolution. I hope that I evolve and continue to evolve. I think that it's really sad when people, you know, paint the same parakeet for the whole entirety of their lives. But, you know, let's not be judgy. Everybody loves a parakeet. Um, might be a different parakeet. Might be a the same parakeet. Colors, you know? Exactly. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was good to see too. Uh, and then after the Met and MoMA and all that stuff, I went to New Jersey for three days of sewing training, sewing camp. That's what I keep calling it. Um, so I am going to be on HSN Home Shopping Network on Wednesday. And let's give a date because people listen oh, to this all the time. That's Wednesday, March 21st. first. Uh, yes. 20. Yeah, yes, 21st. March 21st. March 21st. Three times. So there you go. 
I'm going to be on, uh, and I'll have the whole 12 p.m. hour actually to do this. But so basically the deal is uh, I know how to sew, but I often haven't seen the exact machines that are going to be on air. So I go to Brother Headquarters and they take me through, here are the machines, you know, here are the features uh, in each of them. And because these machines are fancy, you know, it's not like it's just turn on the button and go. They have computers in them and decorative stitches, circular attachments. I'm using a serger to make all kinds of things. I had never used a serger before. Um, so it's very intense and I write pages and pages and pages of notes on like what everything does and the correct terms for everything. And then I have to practice using them. And then of course I need to like get it into Julie's style because I'm not going to sell or pitch something that I wouldn't actually use or I haven't actually used. So like, for instance, I took one of the machines that I'm going to be um, selling on air with me to a quilt retreat I went to this weekend because I wanted to get really familiar with it and be able to say, I made a quilt on this machine. And you guys, I did. I made an entire quilt this weekend and it looks fantastic and I'm really excited about it. But that's a separate issue. Um, so I love learning new things, but I have to confess that this process is intimidating because it's not just about like learning something for use. It's actually about learning something that I then have to be able to talk about, react to, be on camera, smile, do a project, have it turn out correctly. Like there's, there's just a lot of like, there's a lot of balls in the air. So I'm nervous about Wednesday and I'm really freaking out a little bit, but trying to keep it on the inside. Uh, I've been eating a lot of M&Ms to keep my brain powered. I think that's important. You're letting out one of your trade secrets. They're power So then pellets. you came back from New Jersey. Yeah. You went back to the Museum of Fine Arts. I did. I went to the Museum of Fine Arts for the Klimt and Sheila opening. My whole life I've been saying uh, Sheila, but apparently it's pronounced Sheila. Um, so weird exhibit. And I did do a blog post about this, but drawings, but, you know, Sheila's drawings are meant to be finished art. Clips are really meant to be studies for something. And so odd to juxtapose the two. Um, but it's always nice to see how somebody draws because it's the beginning of, you know, real construction and you can see sort of the thought process in it. But it's a small but uh, a small but cute exhibit. Can it something be small but cute? It's small and cute. I don't know what it is. It's a small exhibit. I wouldn't like make it a destination but if you're at the museum it's interesting to see okay then back to tampa or hsn yeah so march is national craft month so i started march 1st um selling the scan and cut at hsn and that was fun it's always fun to run through hsn like a crazy person and i went straight from that scan and cut airing to uh teaching at whimsadoodle taught three classes at whimsadoodle and actually i got a really nice letter this morning uh, from a woman who came with her son, who is a high school student, to class. And she says, um, Hi, Julie. My son Jared and I were at your Whimsadoodle class two weeks ago. I've been a fan for a while, but you have a new admirer in my son Jared. On the way home, he told me how much he enjoyed the class and especially your, quote, life lessons. He is hoping to take another class with you sometime in the future. We both are. So last weekend, he was participating in a French language competition with his classmates, and one of his events was art. Strangely, the theme was World Cup soccer, but anyway, he made this really cool piece on a canvas that was completely inspired by you. I'm attaching pictures for you to see. It's a very large soccer ball, as you can probably tell, with lots and lots of texture. The red, white, and blue colors are included because they are the colors of the French flag. And the 98 numbers are included because that was the year that France won the World Cup. You probably already know this, but I wanted to share his story with you to let you know your classes really inspire everyone and can have an immediate impact. Hopefully, Jared and I will see you in a class again someday. So I will, uh, I just have to write back to her and ask for her permission, but I will hopefully share the photos of that art in the post that goes with this um, podcast. That's nice. 
It is. And, you know, I always appreciate it when people take the time to write a letter like that because I really do put, like, my heart and all my energy into teaching a class and you sort of never know, you know, what people are thinking or feeling or whatever. So it's nice to get something like that back where people say that they did enjoy it and that it did influence them and that class lasted longer than the six hours of actual class. Did you teach, uh, didn't you teach it? Several of these classes were new. All three classes actually were brand new classes that I had never taught before. Um, I taught sort of, you know, pieces or some variations or some other things. So that was interesting because, you know, with new classes, you're always figuring out the timing. Mm-hmm. Um, what to include, what not to include, are the supply lists right, like all this kind of stuff. And I was very pleased with how all the classes turned out. So that was good. And, you know, Jill, who owns Women's Jewel, is super nice. The store's great. I always end up spending money there because there's so many lovely things to purchase. Um, it's anyway, that's one of my favorite spots to teach. It's one of the few stores that I actually, I know people are always asking me to come teach in their neck of the wood. And the truth is, I really teach um, like at the Ink Pad in New York at Whimsadoodle in Florida and here in the Boston area. And that's kind of it. Uh, I just don't teach a lot of other places. So you're going to have to come and see me if you want to take a class, which I hope that you will. Um, actually, I am teaching. So I, I was writing this post about sketching and people had so many good feedback comments that I just decided sort of spur of the moment the night that I was posting the um, – Post, post the blog post that I was going to teach a sketchbook class and I wanted to make it different from my sketchbook yes you can draw class um, so I wanted to make it more intense and more in depth than a real two-day journey into creating a sketchbook and you know working both black and white and with watercolor and more information about watercolor and more information about lettering and I think it's gonna be really good I'm super excited it's gonna be in April um, I think, what did I say? April 20th, 28th and the 29th. Does it sound familiar? Sounds sort of familiar. Yeah. It's the 28th and 29th of April. And it's going to be here at my house with a couple field trips out into the field to practice, um, you know, working in public and what that's like and what the supplies are like and talking about drawing and making it into a life skill of keeping a sketchbook. So I'm really excited about that. So you can sign up for that too. Um, what else? All right. So then you were supposed to be home. You came back from Tampa and yes. you were supposed to be home for two days and then go back. Is that how it works? Yeah. So I was supposed to come home on a Monday and leave on a Wednesday. And as it turned out, because of the snowstorm that was coming, I had to, I came home on a Monday and I left on a Tuesday. So I was home for to one night. To go right night. back to Tampa. Yeah, to go right back to Tampa. I had to come home because I had a doctor's appointment. Otherwise, I would have just stayed with my Florida vacation. Um, but yeah, so I went back to Tampa for HSN this time to do the P-Touch Embellish, my first time being on air with the P-Touch Embellish. So that was nerve wracking too, new, new product, but really exciting. And we came real close to selling out, um, in our 14 minutes. So that was really exciting. I hope that they'll be back on. The P-Touch Embellish is really just fun tool. I've been labeling everything in my house with it. Tell people what it, what it is. Oh, so the Petrus Embellish is a, it's a uh, printer for tape and ribbon. So it prints onto ribbon and onto tape and it uh, has gold printing and black printing and different colored ribbons and tapes. And it has full numbers, letters, patterns. There's so much inside it. It's actually one of these things where when I first got it, I was like, I don't get it. I just like write things on it, but it's really cool. Cause you can change the font. You can add borders. You can just print out like your own pattern ribbon. You can do all sorts of cool stuff. So I've been having fun with that. Okay. So then you flew from so I flew Tampa from Tampa to, to Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. So Tampa to Chicago, um, which turns out to be the same distance as Tampa to Boston, by the way, or the same time on the airplane at least. So we flew Tampa to Chicago for the uh, houseware show. And the houseware show is just what it sounds like. It's houseware. So we're always in the electronics hall and we were across the way from an air fryer and from Black & Decker, the... Um, not hot pot. 
Instapot was right near us, which is a new thing that people are talking about. And so the biggest problem with that show is that everybody's cooking food all day and then they're just giving it to you. So it's like every day you have, to, you have to eat like three scones and two mac and cheeses and cookies and meatballs and, you know, Any bacon. And it's, re- it's really hard. It's you guys, like it's the hardest job on earth. So, um, but interestingly, so trade shows are kind of a crazy wasteful thing in some ways, right? Because you spend all this time and money building this booth and you have all these supplies and the people across the way from us, they were like, we give away or donate everything in the booth. And so do you want a toaster, a coffee maker, a shaver? Uh, Cause they, are, they make so many different things. And so I ended up taking home a, um, in my suitcase, a George Foreman grill. <laughs> Um, so I was really afraid my suitcase was gonna be overweight, but I squeaked it in, which was really good. Um, but yeah, so the show, I was demoing the scanning cut and the designing cut and there were sewing machines there too, and answering questions for people. And housewares is an interesting show because like a creative Asian people make a beeline for you because they know what the scanning cut is, or they at least know what an electronic cutter is. Um, people at the show are like, is this a printer? No. And then what does it print? No, no, no. It's not a printer. It's a cutter. So how does it print? No, no. (laughs) It's a cutter. And so that's kind of an interesting process because you're educating from the ground up. And it reminds me a little bit of when I first designed stencils for the crafters workshop and people were like, what do you use a stencil for? I know that seems hard to believe right now, but people literally could not sort of understand why you would use a stencil. And so the, the like early crafters workshop, um, you know, CHA creativation, like all that kind of stuff. We literally started from like, this is a stencil and this is how you use it. And nowadays, of course, if you started there, people would be like, what am I stupid? Get away from me. So I assume that electronic cutters become like that. A lot of people, of course, always walk over and say, is this like that cricket thing? And I'm like a cricket Yes, but better. So that's also just good. And it's also just market research to know like who you're talking to and what they're interested in. So this particular show, I feel like people were not interested in carrying the scanning cut as much as they were interested in having a scanning cut to do like publicity in their office, put vinyl on the wall, you know, prototype certain things. Um, a lot of people asked about cutting like chipboard and map board because they make models and they were interested in that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's all very, um, it was all for personal use, I would say, for the most part. Just as an aside, what I've noticed is that, so in town we have several maker spaces and they teach classes too to get people in to learn how to use the equipment and they have a vinyl cutter and they have all this stuff and I realized that they don't know about the fact that they could do a lot of the things that they do on all these different machines just with the scan and cut. So you, you haven't penetrated to the schools yet. Yeah, well, you know, it's so interesting to me because I, of course, anything you know, you think everybody knows. So it's always a surprise when people don't. And so this is one of those instances where it's like, Oh, well, of course you want a scanning cut because it scans and cuts. It doesn't just cut. Well, of course you want, you know, but people just haven't heard of it. So, yeah, that's a market saturation issue. Okay. So then you were supposed to come home on Tuesday. Yes. But the snow intervened. Yes, there was a blizzard at home. And so my flight got canceled. But luckily, when I got the snow warning, people just said to me, they're like, there's no, the travel agent said that she's like, there's no way you're getting in. Just book a new ticket. And I was like, eh, I don't want to. And she's like, do it. So I was glad that she made me because, of course, my flight got canceled. And then I actually managed because I had already booked a ticket before it got canceled. I got a seat on an airplane. So then I was able to come home on Wednesday. Yay. Or wait, did I come home on Thursday? You came home on Wednesday because then you immediately left on Thursday to drive to Maine. That's right. So I've honestly slept in my own bed this month twice. 
Yes. And you enjoy it twice. Tonight we'll make three times. Uh, yeah, I know. What am I paying rent for? For a storage locker. Um, but yeah, so I went to, drove up to Maine on Thursday. I had signed up a long time ago for the Boston Modern Quilt Guild retreat. Um, I didn't have anything in March at the time. And so I thought it would be super fun to spend the weekend quilting. I had never made a modern quilt before. For those of us who are totally quilt ignorant, yes, me, describe what is a modern so, quilt. Okay, so traditional quilting is where you take uh, traditional shapes like squares, triangles, circles, those kinds of things, and basically piece together a beautiful quilt, often using a lot of patterns and that kind of stuff. Um, modern quilting is where you take some of those shapes, but you put them together in sort of what I would describe as a cleaner, more graphic style, often using, um, not patterned fabrics. So it has more of a, what I would say like Instagram graphic look. So imagine like a big white square with three hot pink triangles going down it or, you know, uh, a big circle with color shifts in it or something like that. Like things that are not, don't feel like scrappy traditional that almost feel more like a clean line painting, but it's done in mm -hmm. fabric. That's the best way I can think to describe it. So I was interested in modern quilting because of course I had seen lots of pictures of it. It is very appealing from a design point of view because it's so clean and graphic. Um, and traditional quilting, I sort of, uh, I appreciate, but it's not for me. Like it doesn't sing to my artistic soul. And I like art quilting, but I just was interested in this whole modern quilt movement. So I went to the retreat with three goals in mind. One, I wanted to meet some people and make some friends. I don't, um, I don't really have any in real life crafty friends around here. So I was hoping to do that. Two, I wanted to make at every meeting, they always want you to have a name badge. Um, and everybody has these, you know, stitched name badges that they've made, you know, quilted name badges. So I was like, okay, I just need to sit down and make it. It's one of those projects that like, I just have never done at home and I just needed to do. I'm in three. I wanted to make a modern quilt. So day one, I finished up actually an art quilt that I had been working on. I put the binding on and dealt with that. And then I started to prototype out my name badge because of course I'm Julie and I can't just have a plain name badge. I have to have an epic name badge, which also involved two zipper pockets and two different kinds of lining fabric for inside the zipper pockets and a neck strap because that's normal. <laughs> so the first prototype was fine, except that I somehow didn't manage to get the strap in. So then I started the second prototype, but then I got tired and I decided it was time to go to bed sometime after midnight. So then in the morning, I finished that bag. It's epic. It has two different zipper pockets. It has my name on it. It's made with fabric that I printed myself. It has a neck strap. It's amazing. Uh, and then I start decided that I wanted to try my hand at a modern quilt. So I decided to like not be normal Julie, <laughs> which is to say start from the last page of the book. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make a small 12 by 12 modern quilt. Okay. But then because I am Julie, I was like, I've never paper pieced, but I feel like I could watch a tutorial on that and understand how to do it. And then I feel like I could design my own paper pieced block, which is a quilt. So I did that and it was, it went okay. It was interesting. It's kind of a hot mess if you look at it, but I put it up on one of the design walls in the room and somebody said, oh, I love your block. How big is the quilt going to be? And I was like, oh no, that is the quilt. That is the whole quilt. And they were like, oh. And I said, you know, I've never made a modern quilt. I was just playing with it. And she was like, oh, okay. So then I was like, you know what? I bet there's a better way to design the the physical paper piecing of this because I had originally done it as like nine individual blocks that were each paper pieced. And I was like, what if I just designed it as one large 12 by 12 block that was paper pieced? So then I was like, okay. And I was like, I get bored easily. So I didn't want to do the same design. So I did a variation of it, but similar. So then I did that and I put the two up together. And so the same woman said to me, she's like, oh, you decided to make more blocks. And I suddenly looked at it and I was like, oh, 
I didn't make too many quilts. I made two blocks and now I could just make like two more and have a quilt. So I made two more with some slight variations. And again, like trying to improve and figure out the whole paper piecing thing and how it was all going to work. I also, I only used fat quarters because that's all I brought of plain fabric with me. Um, and so I was starting to run out of fabric. <laughs> <laughs> on the fourth block. So when people were like, how big is it going to be? I was like, this is it. This is it. This is as big as it can get. Um, and then I, so then I, you know, was like, should I do sashing, which is a very traditional thing where you basically put like, um, lines between the blocks of fabric. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some woman said to me, it was like 11 o'clock at night. She's like, I feel like it's more modern if you don't put the sashing in. And I was like, interesting. So I decided to go to sleep and just sleep on it. So then I woke up on Saturday with a fresh, uh, point of view, although man, my back still hurts. And every day my back hurt from, you know, you're sewing at this weird table that's too high in this unnatural position. But anyway, so then I went down and I looked at the four squares and I, you know, kept flipping them around this way and that way, this way, that way, trying to decide. And I finally decided that my original impulses were the best and that they should be mountains. And so I stitched them together and then I decided to do a type of quilting that I've never done before, which is a modern quilt style of quilting, which is basically this straight line quilting. And you use a walking foot to do it. I've always done free motion quilting. I've never used my walking foot. So I went for it and you just kind of do, as it's suggested, straight lines. And then one of the girls said to me, why don't you add more lines in certain areas? And this is one of the things I love about going to retreat. Because if I'd been by myself, there wouldn't have been anybody to look at it and say, why don't you add more lines? That I would have just looked at it and been like, okay, I did that. Good job. Move on. But that was actually extremely helpful direction. And so I did that and it was great. And I really enjoyed it. And I learned a lot. Um, one of the things I learned is I should have back stitched because when you do free motion quilting, you automatically create a knot. But when you do straight line quilting, you don't. And I didn't sort of realize that. So I've got some problems in my finished quilt. But let's let's not talk about that. Then I decided that I wanted to do something else I've never done before. Because, you know, like while you're experimenting, you might as well go all the way. And so I did something called a facing, which I had read about and I had seen, but I had never tried because it had intimidated me. And I looked at a bunch of tutorials online and then another woman suggested a tutorial that she used when she made a facing. And so I literally sat there in the retreat more than once, by the way, you guys, with YouTube and my headphones and an iPad and just like pressing pause, sewing things, pressing pause, sewing things. And it really was fantastic. And this is always the way I tell people to learn the scan and cut too, um, or painting or anything for that matter. Like just keep pressing pause on the video and doing it, you know, along until you get to the next step. So I put the facing on. I love it. I will never bind a quilt again. I can't imagine why I wouldn't face everything because it looks so clean and fantastic. So I really, really like it. So I finished a quilt from start to finish in two days, including the design and the experimentation and the learning. So, I mean, that's how much you can do in really no time at all. And then uh, I helped with a charity quilt and that was a great example of you make this kind of of boring looking square and then with but when they all get together it's really an amazing and beautiful pattern overall one of the fun things about quilting actually so and then today this morning I drove home and now I get to sleep in my own bed and you're gonna sleep in your own bed tonight and one more night I think and then you're flying out immediately Tuesday morning the next morning to da -da, Tampa for HSM exactly it's national craft month baby so, so yeah. this has been quite quite a journey filled yeah. week at, or month and the snow has not helped. It has not, and I'm not gonna lie, I totally feel the road lag, so to speak. Uh, and like today I know that there's a ton of computer work that I need to do and there's a ton of people on email who I just haven't responded to, and there's a ton of you know, I, I just I but the truth of the matter is I don't want to do any of that. I want to just have a day off and like hang out with my boyfriend and like, you know, chill, go for a walk, like whatever. But I have this pressing stuff. So 
I am going to do it and I'm going to be grateful that I get to have this job and all that kind of stuff. And I actually, the first thing I did when I walked in the house today is I went upstairs and I journaled in my art journal because that's an important part of like my daily routine. For me, that's like, I don't know, that's I think for other people like going to the gym, like that is just the thing that I need to do. Okay. And uh, so that was really good. And then I'm just going to get into the swing of things here. And you have one other thing, which is, I think, releasing this month Mm -hmm. is that print film. Yeah. So this is a really exciting project that I'm super excited about. And I will do a big blog post and probably a live stream about it, too. But so graphics came out with a line of artist shrink plastic. Um, that ha- it's white shrink plastic and it has designs on it already for you printed. And then you can just color it, cut them, do whatever you want to create all kinds of really cool, um, whatever you would make, you know what I mean, from shrink plastic. So, so you heat it and then it You heat it and it shrinks, down. exactly. So it's really cool. So I have um, three different designs in the series and I'll post some, uh, I don't think it's available for sale yet. And I always hate to talk about stuff before it's really available for sale, but I will be sure to be doing a big blog post and all sorts of stuff about it. It's really exciting. Um, And it's a fun new idea. I want earrings. I will make you earrings, lady. Thank you. All right. So... Get back to work. Okay. Time is money. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Don't waste your time anymore here chatting. And uh, I have nothing more to add. How exciting. How unusual. Uh, So anyway, um, if you want to help the podcast out, um, the best thing that you can do for us is you can leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast because that helps other people find the show so that we can keep doing it. If you want to write to the show, which I hope you do, you can send me an email um, at balzerdesigns at gmail.com and I just might read your email on the air. And as always, you can find me at balzerdesigns.typepad.com, blogging Monday through Friday. And do leave us your comments or questions at balzerdesigns.com designs.com backslash arting we'd love to hear from you if you tweet about the show please use the hashtag pound arting podcast that's all one word a-r-t-i-n-g-p-o-d-c-a-s-t and thanks so much for listening and subscribing and we'll see you the next time on the adventures in arting podcast podcast